following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, August 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Tim, and I am one of the pastors here. It is, it is a joy uh, to be able to gather together with you. We are getting very close to the end of summer and possibly with the end of the summer, the end of this heat in here, but we'll see, uh, and the end of our summer psalm series. Uh, This morning we will be walking through Psalm 139 together. This is one of those psalms that is well known and is, is greatly treasured by many. It is held dear by many people. For some it is because their favorite verse is in this psalm. Many people hold dearly to the words, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There are others who look at this psalm and they would call it theologically rich. They love it because of what it talks about, of the, the, the completeness of what it talks about and describes who God is, how he works. This psalm is filled with the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. This psalm helps us understand who God is what he does and how we relate to it. This psalm specifically, many people would say, is focused on what are called the incommunicable attributes of God. There are communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. And 30 seconds into this, I've already lost part of you, so I'm sorry for that. Um, for some of you, it sounds like I'm trying to use words that are make, uh, meant to make me sound smarter than I am, which is true. Um, uh, for others, you're f- like, finally, we're actually talking about good things. We got, we got the words that really mean something. So I just want to put your mind at ease either way. We won't use those words a lot this morning. But it is helpful to know what they are and what they mean. God's communicable attributes are simply the attributes of God that, that, that God has shared with his people in some way, that we are meant to share in some way with, with him. So, so God's people can, can have these attributes because God is this way. We are made in the image of God, and so we are meant, we are created to be like him. We are told that God is love, and we are meant to love others as Christ has loved us. We are told that God is holy, and then the book of 1 Peter tells us, you will be holy because I, God, am holy. So those are the attributes that God shares with us. He gives to us. But then there are, there are attributes that are unique to God. They're specific to God. They will always be forever specific to God. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Who is like me? Who, who, are, you gonna, who are you going to compare me to? Those attributes are clearly seen in this psalm, Psalm 139. God is omniscient, or he is all-knowing. God is omnipresent, or he is everywhere. And God is omnipotent, or all-powerful. We are told because God loved us that we should love one another. But we are never told because God is all-knowing, you should be all-knowing too. Some of you might think that to be true, but it is not. We are told, you will be holy, for I, God, am holy. But we are never told, you will be all-powerful, because I am all-powerful. There are things that for all eternity will be true about God alone, and those truths should be precious to us. These verses are filled with a beautiful theology. We're going to have an equip class starting in September. It'll be on Sunday nights. 
It'll be called Gospel-Centered Theology. I encourage you to make it if you can. It will be an encouraging time. You will learn a lot. It'll be a challenging time. It is important to know and understand who God is and how He works. But it is not simply about knowing these truths about God. These truths were never simply meant to be studied. What David does here in Psalm 139 is that he talks about who God is and he talks about it in a deeply personal way. He talks about why these truths are precious to him. He talks about how they are difficult to him, how he is wrestling with them, how they lead him to joy and to praise. James Montgomery Poyce was a, was a pastor in Philadelphia, and he said about this Psalm, Psalm 139, this is theology at its best. This is theology that is older, better, wiser, and more practical. It is theology of the very, very best sort. It is this kind of theology that leads us to love, joy, and to praise. Psalm 139 is not a textbook. David didn't sit down to write and to prove certain things about God. He didn't set out to have textbooks written about the psalm. David was sitting down and writing about what these truths meant to him and how these truths have changed and shaped his life. This was someone who was in love with God, who was overwhelmed, excited, and rejoicing about the attributes of God. They have taken hold of David's heart and have shaped his, his affections and his emotions. This theology found in Psalm 139 makes him proclaim, I praise you, how precious to me are your thoughts, and it is too wonderful for me. David understands that it is not just that God is all-knowing, but that God knows him. David, personally and intimately, God knows absolutely everything about him and still loves him. It is not just that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, that you can't go anywhere, that God is not there. It's not just that God is everywhere in some general sense. It's that God is always present with him, that there is nowhere David can go that God won't be personally present with him. It wasn't just that God is omnipotent, that he was all-powerful, but that God used that power to create all things, and specifically, that God used his great power to carefully and lovingly create him. That God used that power to redeem him, to save him, to preserve him, to protect him, to guide him, even in the midst of darkness. That is what David is praising. That is what David is excited about. And so my hope and prayer today is that we will see together that this understanding of God, this knowledge of God, should bring about in our hearts wonder and security and joy and humility. Our hope today is that as we consider the attributes of God and what they mean to us, that they would become precious truths that would give you great confidence to live your life praising God. And so if you are able, let's stand together one more time and we're going to read together from Psalm chapter 139, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high. Cannot attain it. Where shall I go? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be nigh. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Father, give us, um, give us eyes to see this morning. Give us ears to hear. Let us see the beauty that is you, knowing us, being ever-present with us, creating us, forming us from the moment of conception to our last day. Father, you know us perfectly. Let us see what it is to praise that. Let us see what it is to run towards you because of those things. I pray that you would remind us of, of the beauty of all these things today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you can be seated. Uh, so uh, just, just quickly, time for a little honesty. Uh, raise your hand if you own an Amazon Echo or uh, an Alexa. Um, some of you, part of you, uh, I, I think probably a few more than, than raised their hands did that. It is not shameful. Uh, but I will be honest, if you look around and see those people that have their hands raised, um, I just want you to know that everyone who had their hands raised, the government knows every single thing about you. So um, that's our starting point here. When I said it's okay to say it in here because you're safe in here, the truth is this might be the only place that you're safe. Um, uh, now, now I won't have you raise your hands, but if, if I did, I think many of you would do this. If you believe Alexa is a government conspiracy to listen in on everyone's home, there would probably be just as many hands, if not more hands. There have been over 100 million Alexas sold in, in the, just the past two years. We were given our Alexa as a gift and did not plug it in for quite a while. Unsure of who would be listening and when, when they would be listening and what they would be hearing, now we just realize they're probably listening. It's fine. Um, Amazon has actually admitted that they have hired thousands of workers to listen to what people say to Alexa. Alexa never actually turns off. Um, it is a popular theory out there that I believe some of you hold personally uh, that the government is listening, that they've always been listening, but now we've paid them $79 and opened the front door and just let them in. 
if you Google search Alexa, Google, you know, will auto-complete for you. Google will pop up some of the most common searches, and they'll try to auto-complete. And some of the auto-complete, the, the top searches, this is, this is true, um, are, is Alexa listening to me right now? Is Alexa spying on my family? Does Alexa work for the government? Alexa, stop recording me. And then don't talk to Alexa. I don't really know why you would Google search that. But um, I don't actually know if the government is listening. I, I doubt it, but who knows? Um, but I've just resigned myself to it personally. If they're listening, I know what they're going to hear at the Abbott House. And they're not going to like it. It's going to be loud. People are going to be running, cheering, screaming, singing Broadway musicals. And at some point, the kids will jump in, and it gets really, really crazy. Anyone that is listening after about five minutes is going to go, I think I've heard enough. I, I think we're good with the Abbots. Uh, it, is, it is weird to think that someone is always listening to us, that someone knows everything that we're saying or doing. We don't actually want to, to, to know that someone else is listening in. We don't want that to be in someone else's control because we don't know how that would be used against us. For most of us, we want to be known. We want people in our lives who care. We want people that will listen to us, but we want to be in control of what they know. We want to be in control of what they hear and say, even with people that we love the most, even with people that we trust the most. It can be a fearful thing for someone to know more than we want them to. We are afraid of opening up too much, sharing too much, sharing the things that we feel shame and guilt about because we are often afraid of how that person will look at us if they actually knew everything. We are afraid of what they would think of us if they knew that one thought that we wish we had never thought. You are afraid that if you tell them everything, that your relationship might change forever. You're afraid that they might hold it against you or use it against you. And so here in Psalm 139, we encounter someone who is working through and wrestling with the idea that someone knows everything, whether he wants him to or not. David is wrestling with the truth that God knows everything, that God is all-knowing. God knows us perfectly and completely, and that can be almost simultaneously the ultimate comfort and our greatest fear. It can bring about joy and, and anxiety. David begins in verse 1 of Psalm 139. He says, you, Lord, have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows every action of every day. He is painting a picture that is very complete. He knows every action of every day, every ordinary, every extraordinary, every exciting Instagram-worthy act, every boring thing that you do that you would never tell anybody about. He knows when you sit down. God knows our actions from the beginning to the end of the day. He then says, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David is painting a very complete picture here. He is not just saying God is watching, so he knows what I'm going to do. But, but at least he doesn't know what I'm thinking. He doesn't know what I'm going to say. God knows everything. God knows you better than you know yourself. I am, I am constantly questioning my motives. I am constantly thinking and asking myself, am I doing this to be seen by others as a good person? Am I doing this selflessly, humbly, because God loves me and I love others? Or do I just want people to think that I am? I feel like almost every act I do, I have this 
this mix of wanting to do what God wants me to because he has done so much for me and at the same time wanting others to see me and think, man, Tim is really amazing. I honestly feel like when I look back, it's, it's hard for me to discern what those motives and intentions were, all those mixed motives. He has discerned them all. All the confusion I feel around my intentions, he knows exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. He has discerned my thoughts. I can deceive others. I can try and deceive myself, but God always knows perfectly. And then David says in verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it. Even before I know what I'm going to say, you know exactly what it is. God never misunderstands you. You can never look at God and say, you just misheard what I was saying. Many of us have someone who knows us so well, so intimately, that at times they will say something to the effect of, I knew you were going to say that. And it always really irritates me when someone says that. I just want to come back with, you don't know me. Uh, You didn't know what I was going to say. Why don't I like that? Because to be honest, I want to believe that everything that is coming out of my mouth is unique and fresh and intelligent and brand new, fresh on the scene. And if somebody says that, it means, okay, I'm kind of predictable. And here is David looking at God and saying, even before I know what I'm going to say, you know it. You know every word. You know it all together. God is not just making a good guess based on how well he knows you. He knows what you're going to say, do, and think completely before you do any of those things. God knows us. He knows all of our actions from beginning to end. He knows our motives better than we do. And he knows what we're going to say before we do. God knows us perfectly and completely, whether we want him to or not. That is what David is wrestling with here. We often hear this psalm and think, this is, this is so wonderful. I want someone to know me in this way. I want someone in my life who knows me in this way. But do we actually want someone to know us that completely? Do we actually want someone who, who knows us that perfectly and completely? I was listening to the uh, song by Sting and the Police this week. Uh, it's called I'll Be Watching You. The lyrics go, every single day, every word you say, I'll be watching you. Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. That is just super creepy. It is not actually a comfort to know that someone knows every single thing about you, every single word that's coming out of your mouth. When David says then in verse 6, it is too wonderful for me. He is not saying, how wonderful is that? That is so wonderful. I'm so excited. What he's actually expressing in those words is that this is too much for me. This is overwhelming for me to think about. This is so much that I can't even comprehend what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. Why is this so difficult? Because we don't know what someone who knows everything about us is going to do with that knowledge. Maybe they will use that knowledge to tell everyone else how awful we are. Maybe they they will use that knowledge to tell everyone else how much they don't like me and why. When I was a kid, my parents told me something that I realized now was just a way to get me to do what they were telling me to do, but they told me that God has a movie theater in heaven, and when we all get to heaven, he, he is going to play the entire video of your life. He's going to play the entire video of everything that I've ever done, and that everyone in heaven will be there to watch. Now, that is not a comforting thought, especially if you're seven and you have a, you know, imagination that goes wild. Uh, 
Some parents are thinking, yeah, it might work. Uh, parents, don't tell your kids that. And kids, I can promise you that's not true. Uh, that is a terrifying thought. Everything you've ever done, every time you talked bad about somebody behind their back, there was no way you're coming out looking good after that video. Every bad, mean thought that I had, I would imagine that a narrator would come on. Every thought that I had that didn't even come out of my mouth, I imagine a narrator would come on, and it was always Darth Vader's voice. And so he was breathing heavy and sounded the most evil, and every bad thought was read in that voice. And, I, and as a kid, I can remember having two distinct thoughts. My first thought was, somehow, when I first get into heaven, I've got to break into that movie store and I've got to find that movie and destroy it and hope nobody can ever find it. And then my second thought was, if I can't destroy that tape, then all of heaven is going to be pretty bored for about 70 years because they are going to watch me sitting on my bed, reading my Bible and doing nothing else. Heaven would be a pretty miserable place for all of us if that was true, if that's how God worked. The thought of God knowing everything, the theologian A.W. Pink said, the thought of God knowing everything, that thought fills us with uneasiness. We worked very hard at letting people know specifically what we want them to know about our lives. We want people to know all the good things about us, all the things we think make us interesting and unique. We want them to, make, to, to, to know every good deed that we've done and we are willing to share a few bits and pieces of bad things about us. But we want to control that. So as hard as we work to make sure people know what we want them to know, we work even harder to cover up the things that would make us look bad, the things we don't want them to know about. I find it a great relief to know that some of the thoughts that I've had, some of the thoughts that I, that, that I wish that had never come into my mind, some of the things that I've said that I wish had never come out of my mouth, I find great relief in thinking no one will ever know about them. And I find myself wishing at times that God himself didn't know them. I feel ashamed, guilty, embarrassed that I let those thoughts come into my mind, that those, thought, that those words came out of my mouth, and I would do just about anything to keep people from knowing that about me. I want people to know me, but I want to be in control of what they know. Uh, one of those Broadway musicals that gets sung a lot at the Abbott House uh, was something that came out recently. It was called Dear Evan Hansen. And towards the end of that musical, the main character is expressing his, his regret about the decisions that he's made. He's feeling overwhelmed about what people are going to think about him when they find out. And he sings these lines. He says, I'd rather pretend I'm something better than these broken parts. I'd rather pretend I'm something other than this mess that I am because then I don't have to look at it. And no one gets to look at it. No one can really see. I will never let them see the worst of me. Because what if everyone saw? What if everyone knew? Would they like what they saw or would they hate it too? Well, I just keep running away from, from what's true. All I ever do is run. We want to pretend we're better than we are. We want to believe that we are better than we are. We want others to believe that we are better than we are. And so we don't want anyone to see everything. We want God to believe that we are better than we are. We know that we need a savior, but we want God to think well of us. So we run to try and keep people, to keep God from seeing everything. David here in Psalm 139 is showing us that the natural human response to someone knowing us that well is not to run towards them. It is not to run to them, 
We work hard to cover parts of ourselves. I run as fast and as far as I can to make sure that no one knows me that well. God knows that it is a very human response to try and run away and keep our sin hidden. It is the response Adam and Eve have in the very beginning. We sin and we know that God knows, and so we try to get away from his presence. We try to flee from his presence. So now David turns to God's presence. He says in verse 5, you hem me in. You lay your hand upon me. You hem me in, in front of me, behind me. You lay your hand upon me. You have encircled me. You have wrapped around me. The sense here is not the comfort that comes that knowing is, that, God, that God is close. The sense here is that you have trapped me. You have smothered me and I can't get out. There's nowhere I can go. I, I, I want to be free. I want to go somewhere, but I, I've, I've got to get away and I can't. I want to be out of your presence, but, but, but I can't escape you. When he says, you lay your hand upon me, here in this moment, David isn't expressing the loving embrace of a father. This is a father that has hold of him and won't let him go, even though he wants to go, even though he wants to get away from him. It is very natural to think God knows all of my thoughts, so where can I go? How can I get far enough away that he won't know my thoughts, that he won't hear my words? Where can I go that he won't be able to know what I'm thinking? We convince ourselves that if God knows everything, then maybe I just need to go where God isn't. I just need to go where God can't see me. And so David expresses that in verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He moves from feeling trapped to expressing that he's, he's feeling like I've got to do whatever it takes to get away from you. I desperately need to be free from this. I need you to not know every single thing about me. I need to go somewhere where I can be free from your gaze, where your eyes will not see what I'm doing. He wants to flee, just like the prophet Jonah did. God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh because God was going to show mercy to the people there. But Jonah didn't want to go. And in verse 3 of chapter 1 from the book of Jonah, we are told, Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. He didn't just rise to get away from the people of Nineveh. He rose up to get away from the presence of God. Jonah thought, I've got to get away from God. I've got to get out of the presence of God. I've got to get to where God can see me. Jonah did not understand in that moment that God is everywhere. It is an absurd thought that Jonah has. It is a foolish thought that he could get on a boat and go to another town and maybe God just won't be there. God just won't be able to see me if I get a few miles away. God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 23, he asks two questions. He says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? And then he asks, do I not fill heaven and earth? That is the, complete, the completeness of God's, of God's omnipresence. I fill heaven and earth. There is nowhere you can go that I am not there. In the same way, David says back in Psalm 139, if I go up to, to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David starts to use these opposite images to help us understand the completeness, the totality of God's presence. As high as the heavens, God is there. If we go down to the depths of Sheol, he is there. 
That's an amazing statement. Sheol was a place where there is no praising of God. It is the place of the dead. It is nothingness. Even in what I believe is a place where nothing is, God is there. David is proclaiming that even in the depths of death, even where there seems to be nothing good, God is there. This is where David starts to take a turn. He starts to take a turn towards trusting and loving and praising that God knows everything. He starts to take a turn towards this becoming life-giving to something he desires and needs and wants. To know that God is everywhere starts to become precious to him. David takes a turn at the same place that Jonah did. The place where Jonah stopped running away. The place where he stopped fleeing and started to believe and embrace the beauty that God is everywhere. That place is found in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah has been thrown into the sea and a giant fish has swallowed him. And yet, God has preserved him. God is still there with him. And Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Jonah thought he could get out of God's presence by going to a town far away. And he ends up in the stomach of a giant fish. But it is in that fish that he actually understands the presence of God. It is in that fish that he now believes and trusts in the, in the presence of God. He, he, he ends up there and he starts to actually see that running away has, has, has no worth. But that even in death, he realizes that God is with him. That God knows about him. That God has preserved his life. And so he cries out. He cries out and God hears his voice in verse 9, in the midst of the belly of the fish, in the depths of the sea. He proclaims one of my favorite statements in the Bible. He just says, salvation is of the Lord. He's in the midst of a fish with no hope of getting out. Yes, salvation is of the Lord. All of our attempts to flee God, to run away and to hide from God are pointless. It isn't possible. If I ascend to heaven, you are there if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If I go up as far as I can, if I go down as far as possible, you are there. If I go as far to the east or as far to the west, you are there. God himself proclaims, I fill heaven and earth. We can't hide. We don't need to hide. It is ridiculous. It is It is. It is, the, it is the mind of a child that believes that you can hide from God. You cannot hide from God and you don't need to. My daughter Clementine is two. Some of you have seen her and uh, know that she is very, very cute. Um, she is remarkably cute. Um, but as true as it is that she is cute, it is also just as true that she is remarkably bad at hide and seek. Like really, really bad. And we play hide and seek often at our house. Our six-year-old is too good at hide and seek. He likes to go and hide in the dryer, uh, which is not a good idea, but it is a really good hiding space. Uh, and, so, and so we play it a lot, um, and he takes it very, very seriously. He wants it to be good. He wants it to be uh, in, engaging. And so he goes and he finds a great place, and I, I'm counting. And, uh, and as I'm counting, um, I hear a lot of laughing and giggling, and then I open my eyes. And what's happened is my daughter... Is, is basically four steps away from me. And as soon as I open my eyes, she just goes, surprise! And, and it's, it's much more of a birthday party than it is 
hide and seek. Um, and then immediately, she's been watching the whole thing. So she just goes, Abraham's right there, and, and gives him away. So we've worked very hard to, to try to teach her how to get better at, at, at hide, hide and seek. Abraham and I together have tried to teach her how to get better. So now what happens is that y- y- I'll start counting, and, and she will go to some place, um, sometimes the couch, and she will just grab a small pillow that is a, a couch pillow, and she will lay it on top of her about right there, not even covering her eyes. And, 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 and she believes that she is hitting, and I can hear her laughing the whole time. Um, she's not hidden in the least bit. It is clear there's no possible way that I can miss her. There's no possible way that I wouldn't know that she's right there. She's laughing, and she's not covering up, up, up at all. But in her mind, she is completely hidden away from me. And then eventually she throws off the pillow and yells surprise and laughs and, and then tells me where Abraham is. Uh, that, that is honestly about how good our efforts are to hide away from God. Any attempt to flee from God, to hide ourselves from God, is like a child putting a pillow that only covers their chest and believing they can't be seen. This is what we've done from the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden know God is their creator. They know that everything they see was formed and made by God, and they're enjoying all of God's creation. And then they sin. They do the one thing that God told them not to do, and their immediate response is basically a really bad game of hide and seek. They hear God coming, and so they decide to cover themselves and hide from God. In Genesis chapter 3, we are told the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It is always the presence of God that we are concerned with. They hid themselves so that that he can't see their shame, so that he can't find them, so that he won't know what they've done. They know they've sinned, and so they hide. There was nowhere they could have gone to get away from God. And so in the same way, David realizes he cannot get away from God. And Jonah realizes he cannot get away from God. And so they start to take a turn. With Jonah, he knew if it had not been for God that he would have drowned in the depths of the sea. If it had not been for God, he would have been lost in the darkness of that that fish's stomach. But God's hand held him. God's hand kept him. God's hand saved him. And now David sees the same thing. He says this, it is starting to become a true comfort for him. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Before the hand of God was oppressive, it hemmed him in, it trapped him so that he couldn't get out. Now the hand of God was keeping him, was, was, was guiding him, was holding him. That before the hand of God kept me from running away when I wanted to. Now the hand of God is comforting, is protecting, is leading. This is the beautiful transition. This is a change that many of us need today. A transition that you need to make in your own heart. It is a fearful thing to be known, to be seen completely. It is a fearful thing because you don't know what will happen to you. You don't know how that will be used against you. But once you see that the one who knows you completely, the one who sees everything, Everything that you do and say, the one you cannot escape from, is also the one that loves you more than anyone else ever could. He is the one that created you, formed you, redeemed you. When you really start to see that the one who knows everything about you is also the one that loves you more than anyone else, then you start to see that this is something that you can truly trust 
and believe in, something you can treasure, something you can start to praise God for, then you don't want to escape. You want to be there with Him. Once you believed that God's hand was oppressive, was keeping you from doing what you wanted to do, now you start to see that it is those very hands that are leading you, guiding you, protecting you. And now it is precious to you that He is, he is always close, always knowing, always guiding, always present. Those are the hands that took Jonah out of the depths of the sea. Those are the hands that reached out and took hold and picked you up out of the depths of sin and death. They are the hands that formed you, fearfully and wonderfully made you. They are the hands that gave you life, and they are the hands that give you new life as one of His children. And they are the hands that will sustain and hold you through all eternity. David's thoughts now turn to praise for the very thing that he had hated and tried to run away from. He now starts to talk about how much he treasures. He starts to talk about the transformative joy that is found in the knowledge and presence of God. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. This is, this is, this is so good. This is so rich. This, is, this gives us life. There are times where we think we want to be anywhere but the presence of God. We don't want a God who is, who is always there, always listening, always watching. But then you're in the belly of a giant fish. You realize you are in darkness. You realize that no one can get to you. No one can help you and you can't help yourself then God's presence is your only hope. God's presence is the only thing that can save you. It is the only hope for life. It is our only joy. David says the night is as bright as the day for you. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of death, in the place of death, it is, it is easy to wonder, to question if there will ever be light again. What is my hope? Where is my hope? And then David remembers and rejoices because God is everywhere, God knows me perfectly, then the darkness is no obstacle for him to get to me. The, the death is no obstacle for him to get to me. This is why Jonah cries out, salvation is of the Lord. Of course it is. What else is going to help you right now? You're literally in a giant fish in the depths of the sea. Where else are you going to turn? God can get to you. God is with you where no one else can go. And that God wants to save you. That God formed you, made you. And so we cry out to our Father. We cry out to the one who knows everything about us because there is nowhere else to turn. And so David now completely turns to praise. He says these wonderful verses that are so treasured and so, so beautiful. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You, you already had all my days. Before I was born, you were intricately weaving my life together. You know all of them before any of this was. You knew all of this before any of this was. 
I don't have to try and act like you don't know what, was, what is going on or what I'm saying. You knew all of it before I was. We often take this beautiful verse and, and, and rightfully apply it to, to remind us of the value and worth that we have in, in God, in Christ. We use it as a reminder of the value and worth of others. There is such great and wonderful truth in that and that it is important to remember and focus on. But the main focus of, of this passage does not focus on how wonderful I am. It is completely focused on how a wonderful, amazing God has a wonderful, amazing process that produces a wonderful, unique creation. It is not focused on how great David thinks he is. He is focused on how great his God is. That a God that is so far above us, so much greater than us, takes great care to form and make each one of us. The focus is all on God. David's eyes are completely on God. He has a confidence now that is not in himself, but is completely in God. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Where does our confidence lie? It is not in how wonderful I am. It is, it is that we have a wonderful God who makes wonderful works and that is, has chosen to redeem his people. David now has confidence and trust because God has been with him every step of the way. God has been leading, guiding, in control every step of the way. And that will continue every day from the moment of conception until David breathes his last breath. From the moment we were conceived, when no one else knew who we were, in, in the depths, in the darkness, when we were unformed substance, you were putting me together. You cared for me. You knew all the days of my life. You were intricately weaving my life together in its infinite complexity. God knows all of our days, the good days, the bad days, the first day, and the last day. God has done so much work throughout our entire life, and that is why we can trust him completely, totally, confidently with all of our days ahead. We don't have to have anxiety about our last day and when it's coming. We don't have to worry about that because God has already set it out. God knows it. He knows us. David is now praising God. He praises the thing he was trying to run from. He praises the fact that he is known in this way. Why? Because he knows and he trusts God. He knows and trusts his creator. He knows and trusts his redeemer. He knows and trusts God because God perfectly knows, redeems, and protects David. Because of that, David no longer is concerned about what is God going to do with this information. What is he going to do? What if everybody finds out? David is now confident that God has no intention of putting all of his faults, all of his sins, everything that he's ever done on display. In fact, God very much does the opposite. In Psalm 103, which Shelby will be teaching on next week, we are told as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God will remove our transgressions from us. God will leave no trace of our sin. God has made it so that in eternity, our sins will never be known by anyone. The very thing that we are so desperate for, for people to not see us that way, is the thing that we are not capable of on our own. We keep trying to accomplish by, by hiding ourselves, by keeping ourselves hidden. But it is the very thing that he is going to accomplish 
on our behalf. It is the very thing that he sent his son into this world to do. We are going to be seen in the righteousness of Christ. That is how people are going to see us. They are not going to see us and see a long list of sins. He is going to take our sins so far from us that he will leave no trace of them. There, no one will know about them. Those sins will not be known. They will not be remembered. God doesn't want your sin to be the focus of eternity. His glory, His redemption, His Son will be front and center for all eternity. God knows all the worst things about you. He knows the worst thought you've ever had. He knows the worst thing that you've ever done, the worst thing that you ever said. And He knows the best things about you. And He knows that your absolute best day still falls very short of the glory of God. He knows all of this and everything in between, and he still loves you. He still cares for you. He still sent his son to die for you. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we had made ourselves enemies of God, even when we were running from God, Christ gave his life so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could be saved by his life, so that we could have life because we are found in him. Christ had his hands pierced through his hands and his body beaten. He went into darkness and went into death so that he could reach those hands out when we were spiritually dead, when we were spiritually in Sheol, while we were lost in darkness, and he pulled us out of death. He pulled us out of darkness, and he holds us secure forever and ever. We were bound forever to be apart from him. We were trying to get away from him. But because of his amazing grace, he takes us from the depths. He takes us from, from our own selves and he unites us together with him. And, and we're told in Ephesians 2 that we are raised up and seated together with him in the heavenly places. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking and explaining to his fathers, followers that he is the good shepherd and that he will give his life for them. And then he says these amazing words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. We will never perish. We don't have to worry about Sheol. We don't need to worry about death. Jesus has made it so that we will never perish. He has made it so that we are perfectly secure in those loving hands that we are so desperate to try to get away from. Proverbs tells us, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. You run to it and you are safe. There is no safer place in this world than to be found in Christ. There is no safer place in this world than to, to, to receive Christ and all that he has done for you. So I, I encourage you, receive Christ today. Trust in him. Stop running away. Stop trying to hide yourself. Stop running from him and you will find that same wonder and security and joy and humility and praise. Quit believing that there is safety anywhere else. Quit believing that you can create your own level of safety and turn and run to the one. Receive the one who has searched you and knows you and still loves you and gave himself for you. We're going to take communion here in a moment. I encourage you, if you have never done this, if you've never run to this, if you've never trusted in this, take time now to consider what it is to turn to Christ, to run to Christ with everything that you have, to surrender and to receive the grace that, 
that, that he poured out to receive what he's done in giving his life so that we can know what life is. There are prayers in your bulletin. I would encourage you to take this time of reflection and time of communion and consider, consider those prayers and talk to someone about it. And for the rest of us, we are going to run to Christ. We are going to run towards Him. That's what communion is. It is turning towards Him, rem being reminded of what He has done for us, and rem remembering that there is nowhere else that we can turn to. And, and so we will, we will be reminded of that together in hearing those wonderful words, the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And we will take the bread and dip it into the cup and, and, and proclaim the truth that there is nowhere else to turn. Um, Father, thank you for this, this time. Thank you uh, for this opportunity, um, for, for these words of, of David. Um, as, as, as he sees you, as he, as he starts to understand and see uh, your, your, your presence and your power and your knowledge, and he sees that and he is transformed by it, he, he, he loves it. He praises it. And so I pray that you would do that in our lives. I pray that you would remind us of those things this week, that you are with us, that you know all about us, that you have formed us for a purpose, that you have created us and you have redeemed us. I pray that we would be reminded of that this week, that we would live and walk in light of it, that it would shape and transform all that we do and how we love others. Um, Father, I pray that you would do, do a great work through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.